All right. Well, hey, folks. Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to the Daily Evolver. It is Wednesday, May 5th, and I'm happy to be with you. And a special welcome to those of you who are joining live on Facebook and YouTube. And of course, through the Integral Life portal. And thank you to Integral Life, as always, for hosting me low these many years. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. I hopefully will have a special guest um, here as we uh, proceed. Lee, if you get on here, I will call you in. All right, so what I wanted to do today is I got a lot of comments on my last podcast that I titled Post-Progressive Diversity, where I make the case about the evolution of diversity itself and make the case that every stage of development includes people who are more different. And that definition continues to expand. And I love that idea of including just difference because Diane Musho Hamilton, who I've had on a number of times, she, she talks about this a lot. She talks about the polarity in human relations between the comfort of sameness and the excitement of difference and how we're always navigating that, those, that polarity. And of course, polarities bring energy to things. That's the magnet, the, you know, the polar opposites. And so we see that there has been, we see that there's been ever increasing uh, capacity to put people inside your circle and fewer people outside your circle until we get to green, which is the last stage of the first tier of development. And green specializes in diversity and including everybody of all races, shapes, sizes, genders, all cultures uh, provided their green. <laughs> so green really doesn't include modernists. They don't include traditionalists. And, you know, in a sense, every stage, certainly the last three stages, traditional, modern, and postmodern stages of development, which are all online in most countries. And the center of gravity changes from country to country. Um, but, you know, those three are at war with each other. They, they kind of hate each other. And Integral wants to take, go to the next level of diversity, basically which is an inclusion of worldviews, a diversity of worldviews. What is it to live in a world where you're okay with people who see the world differently than you do? Uh, how do we do that? And I would argue and do on this podcast that more and more people are capable of doing that. And I see it in the intelligentsia to some degree. I'm still... You know, I mean, it's a long, it's a long way away, I got to say, but m more and more people are, you know, I always think of good old Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she talked about her long, happy marriage. She had a famously great marriage, and somebody asked her the key to that, and her answer was selective deafness, you know, the understanding of the limits of our influence 
the understanding that we ourselves are coming from a worldview. And it's one of many. And so it's the challenge. It's what we're doing. That's the integral project is diversity of worldviews. So this applies to geopolitics as well. And I talked about that last week when I, you know, I think I, I mentioned that, you know, smart people who understand this sort of thing estimate that 70 plus percent of the population of the planet are traditional or earlier in their worldview. 30 uh, or less percent is fully modern, postmodern, and integral. And so the goal is to do with geopolitics what we're talking about with individuals. And that is to have a world where all of those are okay. Everybody gets to be who they are. Every country gets to be who they are. And the goal is not to change them, but to make them as healthy as possible at the stage that they're at. It's kind of what a good parent or grandparent does with a teenager. You know, you just try to keep them safe, let them continue to grow. You can't make them grow. And, you know, in the meantime, it is what it is. And I, I talked last week about Russia as uh, one of the countries that is in the news for sure. It's an old enemy of the United States, more or less. And I got a, a response from one of my listeners, and she made a good point. She said, I was a bit surprised that you didn't mention the protesting in Russia, because I was making the case that Russia is the center of gravity traditional country, and they like Putin, you know. And she says, you didn't mention the protesting in Russia, which suggests at least some part of the populace wants to go beyond amber or blue traditionalism and is taking a great risk to make that clear. And, and she's right. I, I, I should have made that point. And so I'm going to make it now. And I'm going to read a little bit from the New York Times. And this is from February 4th, so whatever that is, um, a couple months ago, when the trial of Alexei Navalny was taking place in Moscow. And of course, Alexei Navalny is the opposition leader to Putin. And um, he's been pretty well silenced. He's been in prison. He's in prison now. He just got off of a hunger strike. They closed all of his offices in the country. And the trial was, you know, what got him sent to prison for uh, uh, violating parole, kind of a trumped up charge. And he's, you know, quite a hero to the modern mind, although not necessarily to most of the, you know, people in Russia. And um, we'll see how that changes because it will, you know, the, the Russia, like all countries, will continue to develop. But here's what the New York Times said about the trial. And I think it's definitely worth noting because this guy, Alexei Navalny, is a hero and will go down in history as such, in my opinion. They wrote, in this David versus Goliath saga, so that's Navalny versus Putin, the 44-year-old Mr. Navalny has succeeded through raw courage and perseverance 
in putting Mr. Putin on the defensive. The imprisonment was Mr. Navalny's move. Mr. Putin had tried for years to give him only brief sentences to avoid making him a martyr. But by voluntarily returning from convalescence in Germany, where Navalny was after being poisoned by, um, by Putin and the Russian security service. Um, so by, by voluntarily returning from convalescence in Germany and then releasing a devastating YouTube video showing the obscenely opulent palace Mr. Putin was building for himself on the Black Sea, Mr. Navalny left the president little choice but to dispatch him to prison and thus transform him into a powerful symbol of resistance. And I think it is just amazing. The Again, I, I want to spotlight the heroics of this guy. And they have an article here. I don't know if you'll be able to see it. And I'll read a little bit from it. And these are excerpts from what Navalny said as he was being sentenced in the courtroom in, um, in Moscow. And he said, this is Navalny. The reason why all this is happening is because of one man's hatred and fear, one man hiding in a bunker. I participated, uh, wait, okay. I mortally offended him by surviving his attempt on my life. I participated in the investigation of my own poisoning and we showed and proved that it was Putin who ordered this attempted murder. So of course he is losing his mind over this because everyone is now convinced he's just a petty bureaucrat who is accidentally appointed to his position. He's never participated in any debates or campaigned in an election. Murder is the only way he knows how to fight. He'll go down in history is nothing but a poisoner. He says, we all remember Alexander the Liberator and Yaroslav the Wise. Well, now we'll have Vladimir, the poisoner of underpants. That's how he will go down in history. He says, it is the duty of every person to defy you. Isn't that something? It's the, it's the duty of every person to defy you. I am fighting as best I can and will continue to do so, despite the fact that I am now under the control of people who love to smear everything with chemical weapons. My life isn't worth two cents, but nevertheless, even from where I'm standing now, I'm saying I will fight against you and I'm calling on everyone not to be afraid of you. There are many good things in Russia now. The very best are the people who aren't afraid. People who don't lower their eyes, who don't look the other way, who will never hand our country over to a bunch of corrupt officials who want to trade it for palaces, vineyards, and aqua discos. That last little jab is about Putin's disco in his palace at the Black Sea with a wall, aquarium, the one wall is aqua disco. So, you know, quite an amazing guy, this Navalny. And I do want to point out that this is evolution happening in Russia. And, and, I, and I would also point out 
that as of the end of his trial in February, Putin's approval rating was down only 1% from 65% to 64%. And Navalny had gone from 4% to 5%. So that's a lot, you know, he's paying a big price for 1%. Now, what is more, I think, interesting and, and what will win in the long term is that the younger, more urban Putin voter, uh, Russian voters have Putin down 15%. And for eight, tw 18 to 24 year olds, he's down to 20% approval rating. And that is the turning of the spiral. And, you know, it, how fast or slow that turns is due to, you know, will be the effect of a lot of different factors. I remember going back into the mid 60s. In, in, you know, I was 14 years old in 1968, the Chicago riots, the Democratic Convention. I'm living in a very socially conservative part of Western Pennsylvania. And these riots were bad. You know, they, they dwarfed anything that happened in Portland. There were 11 people dead, 48 wounded, 90 policemen injured, 2,100 people arrested. And I remember how we, I'm 14 years old, so I sort of go with the culture, how we felt about those rioters and these people who are causing trouble and um, that we have a president who could take care of things and so on and so forth. And that has changed dramatically. You know, the, the, whoever was there rioting in Chicago, most of what they wanted has come to pass in this country, the, the hippies and the yippies and the, you know, the, the, the cultural revolution, the sexual revolution, all of that happened. And part of why in America it, it can happen is because we do have free expression that is in the constitution. And, you know, nobody can shut down the media. And Putin has, for the most part, shut down the mainstream media. There's still the internet and, you know, we're just going to see how that goes. But in terms of the rest of the world's posture towards countries that are still center of gravity traditional, you know, again, we want them to be as healthy as possible at the stage they're at. And I saw a map uh, that um, the Pew Center for Social Research put out, and they're a good, credible organization. And I'm gonna share that with you because what it showed, and th this is a map of, uh, of Europe, and the title is Eastern Europeans are, are more likely to regard their culture as superior to others, okay? So I know a lot of you are listening and not seeing this, but what you're seeing is the percentage of people who say that they either completely or mostly agree with the statement, quote, our people are not perfect, but our culture is superior to others. And so you see, using the example that we just talked about, Russia, 69% say that their, country, that their culture is superior to others. And Georgia, 85%. Armenia, 84%, Bulgaria, 69%, Romania, 66%, Ukraine, 41%, Poland, 55%. And then you get more into Western 
Europe. You have UK 46, France 36, Spain 20, Sweden 26, Finland 49. So in general, what you see is something that's kind of counterintuitive. And that is the, the, the less developed the country, the more the people feel that their culture is superior. It would be interesting to see this survey um, taken worldwide. What that shows to me is that in a way, once you get to modernity, it's like you forget what culture even in a sense means. You, you forget the thickness of it, the, um, the, the tightness of it. I sometimes refer to it as mean modernity that imagines that being modern actually, you know, being modern, that is secular, individualism, et cetera, that that feels better than being traditional because it doesn't, you know, certainly not for everybody or every culture. People grow through that. I'm always trying to, to get a sense of the feeling of these worldviews, you know, the world space that people live in. And I think you can find it, or at least I can find it, when I look back on that sort of traditional version of Americana, you know, back when America was great, you know, that Norman Rockwell family life. And I had a good bit of it growing up. You know, we're back from church, it's Sunday morning, mom's cooking at the stove, grandma's in the rocking chair holding the baby in front of the fire, little Susie's playing with her doll, Junior's mowing the lawn, dad's cleaning the guns. <laughs> everybody knows their role, everybody's playing it. And, and, you know, when it's working, it's powerful, you know, and there's a lot of louche, you know, that liquid space, that liquid connectivity that we become unplugged from as we uh, become more modern. And we, this is part of the project of respecting other worldviews even though you see them as dangerous and they have to be contained and so forth. It's like, you know, raising a teenager. So I just wanted to point out a couple other of the uh, positions that the Pew Center researched. And um, one of them was same-sex marriage. So 88% of Swedes agree that it ought to be legal. 3% of Armenians and Georgians, they were the least. Abortion, again, Sweden, 94%. Georgia, 10% is the least. Would you accept a Muslim in your family? The ones who say uh, the, 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 the least uh, accepting of Muslims are the Armenians at 7%. And then at 93%, we have Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and the Netherlands. And again, you just see this change of worldviews and attitudes that um, it's growing, uh, but it is very stubborn. And that every traditional culture has a superiority complex. And it, in history, has generally led to war. What we have now is a world where even the modern minority and postmodern minority seems to be in charge. And so, you know, our job is to let everybody grow and not to force them. I did want to also um, 
share a quote from Viktor Orban, and he's the prime minister of Hungary, and a famous proponent of what he calls illiberal democracy. So it's a democracy that is not going for these liberal values of multiculturalism is basically what he's arguing for. And he said, Central Europe, and this is borne out by this study by Pew, he says, Central Europe has a special culture. It's different than Western Europe. Every European country, he said, has the right to defend its Christian culture and the right to reject the ideology of multiculturalism, as well as the right to reject immigration and defend the traditional family model. And he said, in Brussels now, which is the head of the EU, thousands of paid activists, bureaucrats, and politicians are fighting for the idea that migration should be considered a human right. That's why they want to take away from us the right to decide with whom we want to live. And um, Viktor Orban is very popular in his country. So again, what we're looking for is whether it's the conservative uncle or the vegan or the, you know, all of the crazy people in our lives who have worldviews different than ours. It's a new era. You know, there's lots of worldviews out there now. We have three or four stages of development online in most cultures at the same time. That's never happened in history. So part of moving into integral, where we want to integrate, we want to be the universal donor, we want to be friendly to everybody, that's a practice. And it's not easy. And you don't see it very often. Almost nobody can do it, even though I would maintain that more people can do it than ever before. All right. So I see Lee. You made it. So I do want to uh, shift gears here a little bit and uh, bring on a guest, Lee Mason, who is a friend of mine, and uh, he has been in the integral scene for a, a long time. And he has just released a new program uh, through Integral Life. Let's see if you're there, Lee. There you are. And it follows along the theme of what I'm talking about of, of what does it feel like? What is this new territory of integral? And you have created a program called, but what's the actual title? The title of the course is The Essence of Integral Flourishing. The Essence of Integral Flourishing. It's been released on Integral Life. And I want to let you plug it a little bit because I think well, it's worthy and it's exactly what we're talking about and it helps people move the ball into integral. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, well, um, first a little bit about myself. So I, I'm Lee Mason indeed, as you said, and thanks for the introduction, Jeff. And um, so I was born in London, England and I currently live in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and I'm 46 years old and I've spent my professional life working as a physical therapist, as a coach, and also as a teacher facilitating workshops and courses about health, well-being, and personal development. And um, the Essence of Integral Flourishing course, as you say, is, on, um, is an online course hosted by Integral Life. And it combines a large number of insights from the scientific study of human happiness or more broadly well-being. And it combines that with the depth and scope of integral philosophy. And throughout the course, participants are invited to engage in more than 80 practical exercises designed to produce a greater sense of flourishing or a high level of experienced well-being. And 
this concept of flourishing was popularized by a psychologist called Martin Seligman. And he argued that our level of experienced well-being as human beings depends on how well we're doing within five categories. And he um, said that these five categories were uh, represented in what he called the PERMA model, spelled P-E-R-M-A. And in this model, the P stands for positive emotion or feeling happy. The E stands for engagement or feeling absorbed in, a, in an activity that we're performing where we lose track of time, for instance. And the R stands for relationships, so feeling connected with others in a healthy way. And the M stands for meaning or how much purpose we experience in our life. And the A stands for accomplishment or achieving goals that are important to us. And later, Martin Seligman added the letter V to the PERMA model, making it the PERMA plus V model. And the V stands for vitality or feeling fit and energetic. So if we're speaking about flourishing, then according to Seligman, flourishing means doing well across the categories of this PERMA plus V model. And more concretely, that means we're flourishing if we regularly feel happy, if we regularly feel engaged at work and uh, during sports, for instance, if we enjoy healthy relationships with loved ones, if we experience a sense of purpose in our life, and if we regularly work towards the achievement of goals that we find important, and also if we regularly feel energetic and fit. So that's a sort of a, a introduction to the concept of flourishing. And throughout the course, participants are invited to do a large number of exercises indeed to increase the level of well-being they experience within the context of this PERMA plus V model. But of course, the course is titled The Essence of Integral Flourishing. So in addition to exploring uh, flourishing within the context of the PERMA plus V model, we also explore flourishing within the context of the integral model. And the reason for this is that the PERMA plus V model provides us with specific tools that we can use to experience a greater sense of flourishing, generally speaking, mostly in the individual interior and the collective interior dimensions of life, or what integral theory would call the upper left and lower left quadrants. But of course, anyone who's familiar with integral theory knows that reality is much larger than the interior quadrants alone. So what we do is we explore the integral model and ask what it might mean to flourish as a human being across all five elements of the integral model. In other words, we explore what it means to flourish within the context of all of the quadrants, both the interior and the exterior quadrants. We explore what it means to flourish within the context of the intelligences or lines of development, flourish within the context of levels. And within this course, we refer specifically to levels of personal development. And also, what does flourishing mean within the context of types? So in the course, specifically personality types. And what does it mean to flourish within the context of states? And in the course, we specifically look at states of consciousness. So this, uh, the essence of integral flourishing course, it invites participants to increase their sense of flourishing, both within the context of the PERMA plus V model, as well as within the context of the uh, integral model. Yeah, wow. Well, that's a, you know, it's what Integral can do is to, you know, uh, include all aspects of reality, basically. And so that you can, in a, in a way, index and see where am I strong? Where am I not so strong? What am I paying attention to? What am I not paying attention to? And, um, you know, just helps us do that, really. When I think of, you know, what is it? that makes me happy. 
Um, and happiness is slippery, don't you think? You know, yeah. uh, because if I make it my goal to be happy, it's almost like a, a sentencing myself to unhappiness. I, I remember reading, so you're talking about Martin Seligman. He's the founder of positive psychology. He's very famous, made a huge impact in the culture about happiness. And I loved reading his books and you know, there's an, a whole industry on happiness. And I, I, I forget who it was, it wasn't him, but it was a book I read. And the woman, the, the, the thing that I remember about this book about happiness was the key to unhappiness. <laughs> and she defined it as self-focused rumination. So if I think of what, you know, again, trying to be happy is basically put you in that category, you know, you're, you're in this self-focused realm where it's not going to work. But what makes me happy is, I think, the feeling that I'm growing. And maybe that's because I'm into this whole evolutionary thing, which, you know, the idea is we're all growing. I mean, growth is built in. It's like, a, 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 you know, my, my tulips out in the garden, they can't help themselves. As long as there's water and sunshine and everything we need, then growth is built in. And what do you think of that? I mean, how, how does that land with what you're talking about? Well, well you, it, it's a very uh, wise addition to the study of, uh, of happiness or well-being indeed, because th there's been research done that people who pursue happiness um, without, uh, without recognizing that indeed to be authentically happy means to be able to navigate the uh, vicissitudes of life. So to be able to cope with adversity and to, um, to endure both uh, being happy and unhappy. So uh, we, we speak about this in the course also, where if indeed, as you say, you focus on your own personal uh, experience of happiness, then you're basically chasing something that is fleeting and you're always looking to the next moment. So you're basically orienting yourself away from the present moment and to the future. And that tends to produce unhappiness. So I completely agree with you. And on to your second point, where you say that development and growth is one of the things that brings you happiness. And I've shared this with you before, because I've followed you uh, from some of your earliest work with the Daily Evolver. And I've said before that if I compare your um, your perspectives that you opened with when you just started with the podcast. And if I compare them with your present perspectives, then I really see a, a, a great degree of growth. And it's, I've always found it very noble of you and very um, brave that you've done that in public. Because if I look back on things that I used to think, my perspectives that I've outgrown, <laughs> I'm actually very pleased that they're not in the public sphere, but you've, <laughs> you've taken yourself as an experiment, as a living experiment of, of uh, growth. Yeah. And as such, you, to me, are a role model of development. So oh. doing that. yeah, fantastic. Yeah, well, you know, I, I am drawn to this idea of uh, moving into a new stage of, of human history, basically, you know, the integral stage where we integrate the best of what came before and uh, we become less identified with any single perspective or worldview. 
We identify more with the space that accommodates multiple worldviews. We can move between them. You know, we can see what's good. It's almost like when we do that, the, any situation calls forth automatically. It's like the loving intelligence of the universe is invoked and we see what's appropriate or not appropriate. I, you were, we were talking a little bit off camera. You were talking about just skillful means, you know, just to do what is appropriate without worrying about what ideology it supports is a new ball game. And we do that by paying attention to these finer points that you're laying out in your, your, your program here. Uh, so the PERMA-V model, well, let's set that aside for a second. And just because we're all integral junkies here, let's just walk through the five stages or the five you know, aspects of the Ken Wilbur integral model, quadrants, uh, levels, states, lines, and types. And just give a, you know, a little paragraph on what you're doing in each of these domains. So we start out with the quadrants, and that's also because Ken Wilber, of course, himself, uh, um, the founder of integral theory, said that he sees that as the largest aspect of the, uh, um, of the integral model because it, everything fits in there, basically. And what I've done is I've, I've sort of set it up so that you can enter the course, even if you know nothing about integral theory, but also if you do know a lot about integral theory, we'll go into various nooks and crannies and uh, take various routes that you might not have contemplated or considered. So we go into the theory of the, um, of the quadrants and why they're um, composed as they are. And then we also have a look at what does it mean, for instance, to experience meaning within each of the uh, separate quadrants. So what does it mean, for instance, to live a meaningful life from the perspective of the upper right quadrant? And um, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but um, it's typically about, of course, then um, healthy behavior. Um, yeah, the upper right quadrant is the individual exterior. So it's our body, it's our behaviors, it's our flesh and blood, it's our energetic body. You know, that's growing. Even though, Absolutely. you know, for me at age 67, I can see that it's also disintegrating, you know, in terms yeah. of the physical body. But my subtle body, my causal body, bigger and better than ever. Well, indeed, and that, I mean, that's a good segue into states. We can, we can return yeah. to the quadrants later, but one of the things we do during the states module is, and that came from the fact that what I really like to do with the integral model is to make it come come alive and to make it very practical for people. So uh, as you know, of course, our mutual friend, Normali Pereira and I um, have this initiative called Practical Integral, where we also help people with coaching and to um, also apply the um, integral model to their life in a constructive way. Um, but what I wanted to do was, for instance, within the realm of states, it's it's interesting if we're speaking about states, so we have the five states of um, as I framed it, um, physical awareness, emotional, mental awareness, existential awareness, witness awareness, and unity awareness. And I've chosen those terms, which are not always used within integral theory because they're, um, they evoke something that many people can relate to. So the, the body, the, uh, the mind, the, uh, 
spirit, we could say, and, uh, and then witnessing and unity awareness. So in integral, of course, we would say it's the, the gross, uh, physical, the subtle, the uh, causal and the witnessing and non-dual. And what I've done is I've created audio exercises for each of those states. So you listen to the audio exercises after you've studied the, um, the theory and uh, we speak about brain waves and how that, those relate to different types of states. And then you have an experiential journey through the states where you travel from the body basically into the emotions and the and thoughts and then you travel more into the conceptual mind um, hmm. and then into a state of witnessing and then into a state of feeling that you're um, that you're basically one with the universe of the universe and, and with everything else and that um, and I use a physical analogy for that that so we travel from basically from the big bang to the present moment through the formation of stars and galaxies and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's just to emphasize the degree to which each of us is, is a part of this entire living universe in which we're um, participating. And that also means that we relate to each other as those, um, as those aspects. So we're all also very intimately connected with each other. Mm -hmm. So um, that, mm -hmm. that's within the realm of states. And then within the realm of intelligences, we look at... So this would be the lines of development, the lines of intelligences. Yep. Ab absolutely. And here too, I've, I've chosen to frame it as intelligences, as multiple intelligences, so um, that people have a very clear idea of what we're speaking about. And we go, basically go through eight intelligences, and I've chosen... Um, I've chosen intelligences based on the work, of course, of Howard Gardner and also of Ken Wilber himself. And I've stacked them as physical intelligence, emotional intelligence, mental intelligence, existential intelligence, and then self-intelligence, creative intelligence, moral intelligence, and environmental intelligence. And what I've done is I've mapped them across um, the quadrants, at least four of them, so that it's also a mnemonic for people, so you can remember them better um, in the way that we do that. And then we just go through every uh, intelligence and then do an exercise so that everyone has an experiential um, anchor that you can connect to the uh, intelligences that we're speaking about. And that's basically the theme throughout the course is that whenever we speak about something theoretical, there's also an exercise that you have yeah. some experience. Of, so we could uh, taste it. it yeah absolutely yeah so then moving from the intelligences or lines to uh, the levels and we basically travel across the quadrants and explore levels within each of the quadrants and this would be the stages of development that i talk about so much yep indeed go on and, and um but it's it's perhaps also good to mention jeff that the reason that i'm using these words so specifically is because i I've had some students who had difficulty remembering the five elements of the integral model. So I thought, how can I create an acronym? So uh, an abbreviation that you, that, that's a word. So I came up with quilts and then the qu is for the quadrants, the I is for the intelligences, the U is for the levels, the T is for the uh, types and the S is for the state. So if you remember quilts, then uh, you can remember the five elements of the integral model. So um, um, uh, within levels, indeed, we sort of look at levels within each of the four quadrants and then specifically focus on the uh, upper um, left quadrant levels of individual development so that people can connect the theoretical knowledge to 
their own developmental process in life. And then within um, the realm of types, what we do is we go through masculine and feminine and look at that basically from the ground up. So even if you don't know anything about it, we build it up and basically arrive at uh, the yin yang um, dynamic of masculinity and femininity, and then move from that conceptual framework into the more male and female framework of how masculinity and femininity shows up. And we look at some differences and similarities between um, uh, human males and human females. And we also look at how sex, gender, and um, gender roles and things like that can be mapped across the quadrants in a way that the whole discussion around sex and gender, for instance, in the culture wars currently, that you, you can see how everyone is right, but partially right, and how they all fit in the, in the quadrants. And to me, that's another example of how you can really relax when you see, oh, okay, everyone has their place, basically, and I don't have to choose a side, and I don't have to sort of wade into the culture war, but you can just see, ah, that's how they all relate within a larger context. Yeah. And then we also move from the masculinity and femininity framework into the um, uh, agency and communion framework, where we basically then uh, remove those concepts from the uh, male and female uh, archetypes. Mm -hmm. And we also look within the um, context of types at um, the Myers-Briggs type indicator, so the MBTI, we look at the big five and we look at the Enneagram, and people are also invited then to do the surveys uh, for all three so that you basically have an idea of what's your personality type what are the challenges and what are the um the the talents that you bring to your life and where is your path of development based on your type and how can you most skillfully uh, use your type in life so um that's i think we went through all five now yeah so. just being able to sort of map myself as to where I, you know, what quadrant I'm most uh, magnetized towards, uh, what what line of intelligence. I always, with lines of intelligence, I always think, I, I want to sort of come from the assumption that everybody is a genius in some line of development. So what is it for them and for me? And what's lagging behind? And then of course states, you just see the fluidity of states you know, from being contracted to expanded. And, you know, you could note that about yourself. And types, you know, I always said the great gift of learning types is that I realized that everybody is not a defective version of myself, which is what I used to think, and which is actually what most people think. You know, the world is self-evidently real to everybody. And you look at other people and they see it differently. It's like, what's wrong with them? Well, they have a different antenna. They're different people. They come from a different karmic stream. And, you know, it just relaxes the whole situation so that, you know, the procreate urge, the updraft of emergence itself can take a hold of us, right? Let it do the work. It's a little bit like turning our life over to God, actually. What, that's how traditionalists would frame it, but there's truth to that. I, I agree, and I, I would say that types is also the the element of the integral model that allows people to improve the quality of their relationships the most. Because totally, as you say, if you can see that 
um, that everybody's relationship to life is in a certain sense natural or natural in the sense that it is what it is and, and you can accept that. There are personality type systems such as the Enneagram or, or the MBTI uh, or the Big Five that allow you to see that all of the variations are natural to a certain extent and that allows you to relax and not have the feeling as you say that people need to be changed to fit yes. your perspective on reality or to yeah. Um, exactly. It's intrinsically liberating. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, integral uh, growth is just liberation from, you know, these um, uh, imagined ba uh, barriers that we have, and, you know, it, it, you know, habits of mind. Uh, so anyway, well, thank you, Lee, for doing it. It's it's on integral life. Again, the title is The Essence of Integral Flourishing. The Essence of Integral Flourishing. It's 14 uh, modules, 80 some exercises, a practice book. And um, yeah, and, and it's on sale now for sure. like 120, 125 bucks, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And you great. also get an extra discount if you're an Integral Life member, of course. Great. And if you're not an Integral Life member, people, you should be. I mean, it's $100 a year, and it is still, and, 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 and getting even better as the central portal of the Integral Movement. So thank you, Lee, for doing that. Anything, if people are interested in finding you for coaching or more about you, where would they look? They can look at uh, practicalintegral.com, so practicalintegral.com, and uh, they'll see uh, Normali, and, and who you also know as a good friend, and uh, me on that site. And, uh, and of course, also on Integral Life, I also host weekly sessions, uh, Integral Life practice sessions with a large number of other very skilled uh, practice session leaders or uh, live event leaders. And um, yes, I'm looking forward to... Um, and there'll be some live aspect of this uh, program as well, right? That's also true. So um, people will also be uh, offered the opportunity to connect with each other uh, about the experiences they have in the course and the exercises they do uh, on a um, social media platform. And we'll also, uh, I'll also be hosting weekly webinars where people can uh, uh, congregate to discuss exercises and, uh, and dialogue together. So, yeah. Super. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lee Mason. And um, again, you. if you're interested in more from Lee, go to practicalintegral.com or go to Integral Life and check out his course. Well, this is uh, the essence of the Daily Evolver. It's what we're doing here. Thank you for joining me. And I will be back uh, same time, same station next week. And hopefully we'll see you then. All right. Thanks, Lee. And thanks, everybody.